This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello everybody and welcome to your latest episode of Analyzing Anfield as part of your Blood Red channel. Thank you very much for joining us this week. Despite the fact that the Premier League season is over, we are continuing. We are going full flow into the Champions League final. But that's you know a good uh, good 10 days away. So what we're going to do today is uh, a Q&A episode where we asked you on Twitter and Facebook to send us your questions. We're always getting questions on the Blood Red Facebook group, which you can obviously find on uh, on Facebook, funnily enough. And also on the uh, on Twitter, you, you was uh, atting me, um, I'm Christian Walsh, and you were also atting Josh Williams at Distance Covered. And you were uh, basically, you're always, you're always asking us questions, so we decided to actually start answering some of them uh, in relation to the season, in relation to the transfer window, Loanies and just a little bit about Klopp's tactics in general. So I think we might as well crack on because we've got a hell of a lot to get through, Josh. Um, and a, a bit of a doozy here to start you with because I think this is a, you know, a, I think this is the question that's going to be on everybody's lips heading into August, certainly when the when the Premier League season resumes. Um, this comes from Dan Kenneth, a fan of the show, friend of the show, and he says, "How much of this season's underlying performance is repeatable, and what are the unsustainable?" Hotspots. Yeah, that's for the question. That was the first one I saw actually when I went online. It's good, isn't it? It is. Yeah, do it all good to be honest. Yeah, do yeah, all, yeah. Do it all very, yeah. very thorough questions. And if yeah. we do, if we don't ask one, by the way, it's not because it wasn't a good one. It was just because we've literally have only got an hour to do this. So yeah, and uh, some of the questions as well tie in with other ones. Exactly. So yeah, we've had to kind of group some of them together just to fit in the time slot. Um, but in terms of the performance, I'd say it's uh, you. You got to look at how we've ended up where we are um, just as a team what, what's what's contributed to that over the course of the season and I think you look at Alisson and the defence um, and you look at set pieces and you look at luck and things like that obviously luck is something that I do believe that you make your own luck but that's something that will just kind of happen here and there. And next season we've got VAR too, haven't we? Um, so whether that will bode well for us, we, we you can't really predict yet. Yeah. I is have it, a, I have a little bit of a theory on that. Again, this isn't really you can't quantify this. I just I just worry a little bit. I just think Liverpool play on the um, the edge so much, you know, in the way they press and the way they sort of they're a physical team and worries whether this, you know, this VAR is going to sort of, you know, disrupt some potential counter-attacking opportunities, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah, no, hopefully it doesn't become overly stringent. Um, but on the defence, I think the defence has been the key improvement this season. Our defence has overperformed by the fourth most in the league. For most of the season, we was virtually top, really. We, for most of the season, we we simply should have conceded more than we were. Um, it's ended up that we've conceded about seven less than what we should have in the, in terms of the league, mm. and that's ahead of um, that's better only by Spurs, West Ham, and Newcastle. From a Spurs perspective, Hugo Lloris has been the best keeper in the league, I think, in terms of uh, stopping shots that he shouldn't that he should be letting in. And Newcastle obviously get a lot of bodies in between themselves and the goal, and that's something I think that we do. I think that we're very good defensively in terms of everyone working for each other, 
getting themselves in between themselves and uh, getting themselves in between the ball and the goal. Uh, so that Allison's never really saving clear cut sh- chances. We talked about that last week in terms of XG per shot. Um, so it's a, it's a difficult question to answer because I do think that the whole set pieces thing is repeatable. Although we've scored a, a ton from set pieces, I think it's I don't think it's luck. I think in previous seasons, maybe under Brendan Rodgers when we had Suarez and we finished second in the league, we scored. A ridiculous amount from set pieces. Skittle nearly got double figures. Skittle might have got double yeah, figures. Yeah, he scored twenty six. He scored twice in two games. Yeah, um, but that I think we did do work, but I don't think it was a, a strict, sustainable method of doing that work. Um, and I think the following season we really dropped off. This time around, you can you can see clear work there in reference to set pieces and certain trades from other sports picked up things like you know. You, you watch if you watch basketball. I don't personally myself, but I'm aware of certain certain plays that are, that are involved. Just little things like Van Dyke being in, in and around the goalkeeper because he's such a, a physical, physically imposing player. Naturally, things end up disrupted there. So I think our set piece um, success will continue. I think our luck is a lot self inflicted. Um, and Allison in the past has, has proved that he he saves more than he should. He's it's, he's just an overperforming goalkeeper. It's just that represents his elite level. So it's a tricky one to answer. Uh, but I, I definitely think that our performance is sustainable. It's just a case of whether we can accumulate so many points again. Mm. Uh, just a little moments like the Pickford thing with Rigi. Um, just crazy little moments like that. You, you, you're not sure whether they're going, they're going to occur again. You know, you talk about the set pieces there, Liverpool, in terms of goals from set plays, 14 league leaders for that. The average across the league is 7.65. Uh, goals from dead balls, um, seven, which again, league leaders. So that's 21 in all from uh, from corners and, and free kicks. Uh, the league, the uh, league average in general is around about eleven. So you know they are overperforming, but as you say, there is an opportunity there. Um, something that I thought Liverpool as well. Looking at it, you know, fifty-four big chances missed. That puts them one, two, three, four, five, sixth in the Premier League. So you know maybe they can sharpen that a little bit more. But I suppose when you take when you have so many big chances, you will naturally you know, miss more. You know, Man City, for example, have missed 70 big chances this season. But obviously they're creating a hell of a lot of big chances. Um, and also one that, you know, uh, an, op- an opportunity for improvement is is uh, goals from outside the area. Liverpool have only scored five this season. Um, that puts them firmly in the bottom half. Um, whereas Manchester City, for example, have scored 15. So, yeah. you know, you're looking at talking about uh, marginal gains. Um, one of our other listeners, regular listeners, Sam Williams, talked about marginal gains in one of the questions. You know, there's a marginal gain there. There's a 10-goal swing, potentially, uh, with goals outside of the box. I think just on that underlying performance, too, in terms of XG and XG against, you'll always perform, overperform to an extent if you've got elite players in those areas. Just because elite players don't match up to the average player, the the overperform, they're better than the average player. So when you've got the likes of Sadio Mane, Salah and Attack, and you've got players like, you know, Van Dijk and Allison in defence, these are above average players. These are players that are of an elite level 
Uh, so the underperformance that we that we seem to be experiencing both ends of the pitch, it, it's reasonable to suggest that that would continue. And it's it's not a su- surprising, maybe in the sense of it is for West Ham, maybe, mm. um, because as I said, we've got such good players. Any hot spots that you think that Liverpool have to be a little bit careful of? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't actually. The only hot spot thing is is the luck, the the luck yeah. aspect of it. Um, I think we've been driven this season. And we've just managed to just create moments of madness late on in matches. Uh, and whether they will continue, that, that's the one area where you just think like on another day, you know, if, if you replay that match a hundred times, would that happen? Probably not. Um, just. Off the top of my head, I can't think of too many right now, but the, the Pickford is a perfect example. It's just, it doesn't happen. When does that happen? Mm. Bouncing off the crossbar. It's just crazy. Uh, and we secured, obviously, two more points from that. The City away moments, in fact, when we could have went 1-0 up. It's a case of inches. When City went away to Burnley and they went, they went ahead through inches. These are the things that for me, I'd consider as hotspots because these are things that could very, very, very easily go the opposite way mm. in another day. Uh, thanks for that, Dan. Um, <clears throat> SHL, Shul, I don't know, sorry if we get any of these <laughs> names wrong, by the way, especially some of the very, very, I mean, how are we meant to say that? SHL. Um, the shift mid-season from 4-2-3-1 to 4-3-3. Was this, meant, was this to maintain freshness in the attack and third with less sprints? Or was it purely strategic? I think it was strategic. Uh, I think it was a case of instigating more control. Uh, for the first half of the season, we, we didn't really have anything to lose. Mm. And we were well aware that the City accumulates in and around 100 points. So we just virtually knew that we had to win every match, as good as. Um, so the likes of... Shadon Shaqiri, who played a key part, by the way, in that four-two-three-one, he was without him, we wouldn't have started playing. I don't think, and there was a point in the season, roughly halfway, where he seemed to be losing the impact that he was having early on, um, and as a result, you then make less of an adjustment to including them. So I think it was a case of. You know, we realised we then had something to play for because we were genuinely in the chase. Shakiri tailed off a little bit and um, we had more to lose and we obviously wanted to console the media narrative a bit as well. Um, so it was just a case of moving towards the control aspect and losing a bit of that chaos that we had. Um, I think City had a period too where he... I think they, they lost two out of three, was it? Something like mm. that. Um, Leicester and, um, and I think, Palace. Yeah, and I think around that point, we almost, I, I'm guessing that Klopp almost perceived them as human a little bit. And I think that was when we, we maybe considered, do you know what, maybe they won't win every match. And it wasn't until the final running where we realised, okay, they are winning every <laughs> match. Now we need to start winning every match. Yeah. And we did it. So I, I've, I haven't actually mentioned this on the pod, but I think our performances throughout the course of the season has been relative to how City have performed. Mm. When they were on their streak, we were on our streak. We saw them tail off, so we we thought ourselves, okay, we can tail off a bit. Then you got a 
then they got back on it. We got back on it. So I think um, next season we we maybe have to do a bit less of that in mm-hmm. terms of looking over the park. Do you reckon Fabinho had anything to do with it as well? I've just been having a look and obviously he had a, a bit of a ropey start. Well, that's, I don't know if that's fair really. He had the same start that Oxley Chamberlain and Robertson had whereby Klopp and his coaching staff basically said, you know, you, you, you're new here, you need to learn to adapt, you need to figure out a way of playing in our system. just want to throw these numbers at your ear in terms of um, how well he's finished the season because I... I think he's almost sort of gone under the radar because, you know, as Liverpool's, you know, front three have started clicking again and obviously Mane scored 22, Salah scored 22. Um, they scored four against Barcelona, although obviously Fabinho got a lot of credit for, for his performance in that game. Um, passes into the final third. Um, you know, he is ultimately the number six in this 4-2-3, in this 4-3-3. Um, and he is the one who is meant to sort of, you know, in, basically help initiate the attacks. So starting with Fulham, which was the 10th to last game of the season, passed into the final third, 16-2, but that was as a sub. 11-19-16-6-13-13-8-11. And basically to, if it, that's a bit too too number heavy for you. What I'll say is this, he's hit double, he hit double figures seven times in his final 10 games in terms of passes into the final third. But he hit double figures just 10 times all season beforehand. So that just goes to show you, I think, basically, seven times in the last 10 games, but of all the, of the whole campaign previous to that, just 10 times. Um, now, obviously, there's a little bit of that he didn't play at the start and he was coming on as a substitute a little bit, but he's had, he had a fair run there. Um, he's certainly, you know, more than 10 games. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see that from... You know, March onwards, he's managed to. He really has become this absolute crucial component as a number six. It's almost like the number six maybe Klopp was after all along. Yeah, well, I've I've been impressed with Fabinho since. Um, it sounds a bit silly, but since preseason, I was tuned into the preseason games, and this was back in the days when um, video clips were still allowed on Twitter, at least from my perspective. Anyway, not no more, but. At the time, I posted a couple of clips of Fabinho. You know, once once he secured possession, he quickly feeded the the players ahead of him, and he uh, picked on up picked up on like the, his tendency to play progressive passes to, as I said, the attackers ahead of him, and um, you know, gradually, he seemed to gain confidence. He seemed to gain a real foothold in the team. I think he was once or twice when Klopp played him as an eight. Um, and it just didn't work. Mm. He's just not an eight. He's he's not mobile enough. He's not. Um, he can't cover that ground quickly enough. He's not a box to box player. Uh, and I think once he really felt secured as the six, and he started realizing that he was a vital cog in the in the system, he then started to play his own game naturally, and he started to do less thinking on the pitch and more just kind of, you know, what what he's doing week in week out on a training pitch. So. He's definitely developed into a proper mid- midfield general for me. And he'll continue to progress as well. Lewis Cox says, uh, which Liverpool player has surprised you the most this season, Josh? Good or bad? And in what way? I reckon I know what you're going to say. I know. I reckon I know the player, but yeah. go on. Yeah, go on. I'm surprised. <laughs> I'll, go with, I'll go with good and bad. Okay, go on. I'll start with bad. Yep. Uh, not be Kate. Right, okay. Reason for that. He hasn't had a bad season, don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. And 
I still think he will come good. Still think he's a top player, but based on his history, spending so much time at Salzburg and Leipzig, to similar stylistically to Liverpool and to Klopp, um, I thought he'd have more of an impact than he did, than he than he has. Sorry, um, he obviously starts the first match, looked great, um, very involved against West Ham, but just for various reasons throughout the campaign. Injuries, little niggles, um, unsuitability to certain opponents. And I know Klopp left them out against Wofford, for example, at home because Wofford are a very physical team aerially. He's obviously quite a short midfielder, so we left them out for tactical reasons in that respect. But I just thought he'd be a really crucial player. I thought he'd. I thought he'd be. I thought we'd now be considering how we have just considered Fabinho. But I thought we'd consider him like that. Almost from day one. Um, and I think we've all been led a little bit by clips online, highlight reels and, th- and things like that, which if you were to get, create a highlight reel of his Liverpool season, he would still look great. And that's because he is, he is a top player, he is unique. But I think we realised once he arrived here, I've picked up on, you know, over 90 minute spells, he can still improve and learn how to apply his unique traits more efficiently. Um, so I still I still love him, still think he's very, very unique profile, but I expected beforehand, I expected him to have a real impact on the team. Um, you know, but that probably hasn't really happened, has it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and good, I'll split it between Matip and Origi. I was real for Matip. I thought yeah. you'd say Matip. Uh, Matip is fourth in the league for aerial success, um, aerial dual success. That's based on centre-backs who have played over a 1,000 minutes. He's also eighth in the league for dual success. Um, and as I said, in, in terms of... I'm basing this on pre-season, what I'm expecting for the for the season ahead. I expected Cater to have a serious influence and I expected Matip and particularly Origi to barely play. But the two of them have really made an impact. Arigi scored five goals and made one assist. Uh, one assist. But you know the moments in which they've they've happened. Ninety six minute versus Everton. Um, winner. Eighty six minute winner against Newcastle. The opening goal and the deciding goal in the Barcelona comeback mm. at Anfield. And the only assist came against Burnley away when we had a one nil when we were trailing one nil. So he's just been able to really influence proceedings, really influence results with very limited minutes. Uh, and as I said, Matsup, I, I didn't think he'd play much of a part, but he's come in and just looked like an established part of the eleven for, for years. Uh, so you know, long may it continue really. What well, your Matsup, yours Matsup, is it? I think mine was Matsup. Yeah. Um I d- do you know I didn't even really think of Origi because he's he, he's just I mean, obviously, he's been a surprise, but he, did, he didn't cross my mind, but Matip is certainly mine. Um, I also love, obviously, the, the, the stat that we've said before on, on this pod um, about his progressive runs, of course. And I didn't fact, even mention that, did the I? The fact yeah. that he's... It might, I don't know if it's changed recently, but uh, certainly when we recorded a couple of weeks ago, he was alongside was Hazard, Traore, Felipe Anderson. Yeah, fourth behind them three. Unbelievable. Um so much so, if you would have said to me at the start of the season, Liverpool were going to play Champions League final and Joe Matip would have been starting, I probably would have wondered what, what, what's gone wrong. 
Um, but he's he's definitely above Lovren. And I think Gomez has, has, has got a real battle on his hands next season. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that Matip will start the final, which is a testament to him. Um, Rob Mason asks... Um, Bobby's goals, Firmino's goals, how many by his head, his left foot and his right foot. I assume this is harking back to our conversation last week uh, over Sadio Mane and how basically his goals are so impressively spread out. I'll just give you a quick answer to this one, Rob. It's uh, three with his left, five with his right and four with his head, which again is a nice spread. Uh, that's just league games alone, by the way. But that that, that that is a nice spread, that. And I think for all Salah um, can be accused of being one-footed um, and what a foot. The fact that on the other side of the pitch you've got two players who are obviously you know ambidextrous when it comes to using the feet is a, is a, is a real bonus. Um, people on the Facebook group really like this question by the looks of it. Uh, Matt Addison, is there a player who's performed above what the statistics suggest he should have done this season and maybe therefore will perhaps not reach the same height as next year and vice versa? Is there somebody who's gone a little bit under the radar this season but might be one to watch out for next year? Thinking in terms of expected goals, but obviously could maybe work with other metrics. That was a good question. Mm. Yeah, I like that one, sorry. Um, I think outfield players, we will go with Sadio Mane. And this is for both. So it's... It's going to be interesting, because like, I've made like little notes here as well. And I, I've, Go on, I've, well, I've, got the, I've got the two Mane ones as well. Well, he's, he is unique, like we said last, last week. Um, he should have scored less should have around 16, 17 Premier League goals. He's obviously finished with 22, so mm. he's overperformed there by about five. Um, but on the other end of the scale, we've talked about his creativity. He should also have more assists. I couldn't believe when I saw it. I yeah, really couldn't. Um, should have four more assists, according to what I mm. picked up. Um, was, that, was that in the Premier League? I can't remember. It might have been. I've got 8.24 uh, expected assists were just free in reality. I think that was across all competitions. Yeah, that will have been, yeah. 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 So that's, you know, an extra five. Yeah, it is uh, strange because uh, he, he's... We've, we've talked about him being um, not creative enough, but if he's if he's notching five, that's you can't. That's not too bad. Um, obviously, you can improve on that further, but yeah, man, he should be, should be scoring less, should be creating more, basically. That's the, that's the crux of it. And in terms of Allison, obviously. Yeah. But with Allison, we know that he has done it also last season. Um, this season, should have conceded 48, has conceded 37. Last season, he... This is in all comps, mm. I think, by the way, including his country. Yeah. Last season, should have conceded 69, conceded 53. So, the fact it's now over two seasons suggests that that next year shouldn't come down because he's he's demonstrating that now. That's that's um, not set in stone, but you know it's reliable enough yeah. to go on. Um, just looking at Rome, I had a little look at Roma as well. This season, over performing in goal by four, but last season it was ten, mm. and I've taken a bit of a hit too. I think they're just outside the Champions League yeah. places last time I looked. So, um, and I had I had a little look as well. This is less worrying. I'd say it's less. Less prominent, but Trent and Robertson, the two fullbacks, um, they've obviously notched a fair amount of assists. But if you actually think of those assists and the fact that the crosses and things, they're not easy chances, they're not clear cut chances. So 
they're being valued by expected assists as not low quality chances, but difficult chances that you wouldn't expect most players to score. But the fact that we've got Mane in there, who's very good with his head, you know, Salah, who's a good finisher, and and these types of players, they're getting assists for them. But according to what I found, um, Trent should have, what was it? I think he should have had four less assists. Mm. I think Robertson's two less. Um, but you know, that's that's marginal stuff. And yeah. Based on the quality of our attackers, that's that might not go down. I wouldn't be too concerned about that. I put them down as well, but I did put the asterisks next to them that they are still both of them have progressive prof- profiles, so they can they they can do it again. It's it, they can improve. It's not as if this is the you know Trent's twenty one, Randy Robertson's twenty five. Now I think it's not like they've they've hit their peak and they, you know they can actually become yeah. even better, yeah. um, which is really important. I I put I, I put I put Marley down. Um, I put Trent and Robbo down. I also thought it would be worth pointing out that Salah scored 30 goals this season um, in all competitions for Liverpool and his expected goals was 28. Now, I think when you're talking about numbers that big, two goals here is neither here nor there. I think that is, for me, that's imp- you know it's impressive. Um, it, he's a, He is an elite goal scorer. You know, yeah. He should be scoring 28 goals. Um, I wouldn't expect that to drop off anymore um, next season. Obviously, he massively over- overperformed last season. But you know, I don't think there's any worry about that. Salah's going nowhere. I think I think this what we've seen this season is is the Salah we should have saw last season, mm. which is still an incredible player. Yeah. But last season he just seemed to go a bit crazy with it, <laughs> yeah. and he seemed to get some real momentum behind mm. him. Um, but this season Salah is is more what you'd expect. I'd mm. say. I've uh, put down Kaiser as well, both in terms of XG and XA. Um, I didn't get. The, I haven't put down the exact numbers, but he basically he should have scored more and he should have assisted more. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't actually. I think he registered maybe one assist, but he, he certainly should have had more than that. Uh, and this this one for me is just Origi's shot on targets. Fifty six percent of his shots on target, um, <laughs> and this is somebody who's doing two shots per ninety. I mean, it's yeah. absolutely remarkable. Um, his, his goal conversion rate is thirty seven point five percent. Um, See that will come down. That, 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 it will come down. It's, it's one of the highest. I, I, I filtered it a little bit more because normally we filter on this show to a thousand minutes. I filtered it to eight hundred because we want to include them. He's played the sort of midway eight hundred and fifty ish minutes this season. Um, and I filtered it. Cavani's the only elite striker who's anywhere near him. He's about fourth, fifth in Europe for goal conversion rate. Um, hilariously, Lucas Perez is second. Um, <laughs> But he's only averaging around one point six shots a, a, a um, one point six shots a per ninety minutes. So, you know that yeah, that will come down. For, for, just for a, for a bit of context as well, it's probably worth mentioning that like the likes of Salah, Harry Kane, top strikers usually post around maybe sixteen to eighteen yeah. percent conversion. It's, so yeah. for Rigi to be on thirty seven <laughs> is unreal. crazy. There was a point in the season where Arsenal were just scoring ridiculous amounts of goals and. People that follow XG were predicting an eventual downfall mm. because I think both Lacazette and Aubameyang were both posting over twenty five percent, and that that had to come down. They, they weren't going to keep getting Arsenal out of um, hot water there, and you know, lo and behold, it ended up happening. They ended up suffering a few bad results, and they ended up fifth. So these are things that you can rely on usually. Uh, next one from Adam Forster, and he, these have all got sort of a similar theme, I suppose. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll put the we'll put Adam Forster and Anthony Mazer together. Um, 
basically, who do the key stats suggest has been Van Dijk's best centre half partner this season? Um, it seems like a long time since him, Van Dijk, and Gomez were playing so well together at the back at the start of the season. And Matip obviously has come on strong later on. Plus, of course, there's Lovren. Um, and Anthony asks, you know, I'd like to see you guys discuss the centre back partnerships and why they've been great this year. It seems like everyone wants us to go and sign a centre back this summer. But, you know, would you? Well, funnily enough, I actually would. <laughs> <laughs> um, but nevertheless, we will we will answer the question. Um, I, th- I think from an analytical perspective, it's it's notoriously difficult to judge centre backs. Um, that's that's just a a widely known thing, really. Um, and especially if you're using a white scout as a platform, it's a superb platform, very useful in terms of scouting and things like that. But for some reason, defensively, it can often be a little bit funny. Mm. Uh, Nevertheless, it's difficult to nail the best partner, but aerial dual success, for example, Matip is the best. Um, defensive dual success, Matip is again the best. This is excluding Van Dijk, obviously. Mm. Um, shot blocked, Lovren is the most active. Interceptions, Lovren again the most active. And in terms of fouls made, um, Lovren again is the best. Uh, so, you know, Gomez, Gomez for me, I would I would still pick Gomez just because I think he offers a different dimension in terms of having a fast back line is uh, really different, really unique. And I don't think... Push don't up, th- can't you? Yeah, and I don't think he's error prone either at all, Joe Gomez. And I think... I was going to mention his possession game then, but Joel Massop's got a good possession game too, actually. But we've said in previous episodes that we have three very capable, very useful backup centre-backs, really, to play alongside Van Dijk. And ultimately, because of the um, defensive stability of the system, how good we are without the ball, how aggressive we are without the ball, how willing everyone is to run for the teammates... Our centre-backs shouldn't really ever be exposed too much, but if we're, if we're going strictly on stats anyway, which is not not a good idea really in terms of centre-backs, you're looking at probably massive as, as the best um, as the best partner, the most reliable partner. Just on, uh, another note as well, earlier in the season when Joe Gomez got injured and we funnily enough started conceding a little bit more, goals started coming in, um, and people obviously started looking at, oh, this is because Gomez isn't playing. This is because Gomez is now injured and, you know, Massive's coming or Lovin's coming or, or whatever. But at the time, I looked into, you know, the underlying XG that we were conceding with and without Gomez. And it was the same. There was no real surge upwards or downwards with or without him. It was just a case of we were overperforming defensively earlier in the season that we were eventually going to start conceding more. And we did, and it just so happened to coincide with a Gomez injury. But as I said, out of, the, out of them secondary centre-backs, there's, n- there's no real standout that you need to um, you need to highlight there. They, they all just offer a good profile and a good, good level of contribution. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. 
One from Thomas Brown. Could Trent convert his form and influence into a midfield general role when he spends his, where he spends his formers of years? Um, and which fullbacks at other clubs could provide cover for Trent and Robertson? It's a it's a concept that's been considered a fair bit, hasn't it? Trent moving into midfield, but I would personally not do it. I wouldn't be interested in it, me. Um, I'm just, a year ago, yeah. Maybe 18 months ago, but I think the way you look at Klopp's style of play... I think it's it's such a change as well. You can't just look at a player and think he's... Like, I remember when Wayne Rooney started playing in midfield and they asked Mourinho about it. And Mourinho said, I could play in midfield and spread 30-yard passes about the pitch with no pressure on me. Um, and I think if you put Trent into midfield, you've got to consider that as a fullback, you... You know, say if I fall back to your right, sorry, and, and behind you most of the time, you're not going to have any kind of pressure, really. So you've got you've got clear angles on the pitch where you know you have to consider in terms of where pressure might be coming from, where opposing players might be coming from. In central midfield, it's it's 360 angles. You've got to be constantly scanning around you, and it, requi- it requires different skills. And... Another thing as well is Krenz, uh, we've mentioned in the past, I've mentioned that Trent's um, crossing ability and his technique when he strikes the ball is, for me, behemesque. And a player with those qualities, I don't know why you'd want to move him away from an area whereby he can wrap his foot around the ball and, and whip it into dangerous areas. You obviously can't do that in, in the centre of the park. So, um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't be too interested in moving him into midfield. I could maybe see him slightly in, a, in an injury crisis as a six, maybe. I could, don't get me wrong, I could see him. I could see him fill in there, uh, uh, like you've just said. But in terms of a permanent switch, no. it it just doesn't make sense. He essentially is a midfielder. Yeah, because I, I think if you, if you move him into midfield, I think he becomes an average midfielder. Mm. Whereas at right back, he's an elite right back. So, you know, I don't see why you'd make that change. So the second half of the question, but I'll 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 add this in with uh, Robbie on Twitter, Robbie the Red. He uh, he's said this: um, if opposition teams can stop our fullbacks, or God forbid they get injured for any length of time, are we? I'm not going to say the word that he's written, <laughs> but are, are they in trouble? Um, and that goes along with Thomas Brown and his is um, you know Thomas's second half of his question: which fullbacks at other clubs could provide cover for Trent and Robertson? So basically. To uh, to summarise this question, I'll ask it to you. You know, basically, if 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 if, if clubs figure out how to stop Trent and Robertson, are Liverpool in trouble? Um, and are there any players? You know, if they did get injured, that could maybe cover for them. Well, I think I mentioned this briefly last week in terms of um, a lot of our attacking obviously comes from wide areas, and that permits us to be very balanced and very cautious in central midfield. So. If the wide threat then becomes negated, you then have to find the threat from elsewhere, probably from midfield. I think it would be problematic without Ox and without Keita. I think, say, for example, Trent and Robertson were both injured or they were both unable to influence proceedings and we didn't have Ox and we didn't have Naby, then that would be a concern because then you're playing with a defensive midfield and 
two fullbacks that are obviously limited for whatever reason or the, or the absence. So as long as you can get that threat from elsewhere, Ox has obviously got a tendency to drift out wide because he used to be a winger. So as long as you're getting that threat from elsewhere and you're able to make those subtle adjustments to keep the balance offensively and defensively, then it's fine. Um, so, yeah, I, w- I, w- I wouldn't consider it to be too problematic in regards to next season. Um, and in terms of fullbacks that we could potentially recruit, I liked Lloyd Kelly. Didn't I know, I, I know. Uh, we've mentioned that we have mentioned them on the po- have we mentioned them on the podcast? I don't think we have. You know, no. This, this might be during our normal conversations when we're not being recorded. Yeah, Josh is a massive fan of Lloyd Kelly. Uh, um, I was very sad to see him go to Bournemouth. The, the only reason for this is because you. We're gonna. T- I'm gonna talk about this a little bit more in a minute, but you have to view recruitment almost as a business, a business perspective on it whereby you are, you know, you're signing assets kind of thing to fill voids, stuff like that. Um, and Kelly, as an asset, just made a ton of sense. And the reason for that is because his age, he's obviously very young. I think he's 21, is he? Mm. He's under 21 international for England. Yeah, he's something like that. Um, last time I checked, he's physically imposing, at least for a fullback. He's quite tall. I think he's around 5'9", something like that. Six foot, maybe. Around that size. Um, he's mobile, too. He's got, you know, he's, he's a very athletic player. Strong. And these traits at translatable to centre-back. So, I've mentioned on previous episodes, the you know, the value you get out of players that can fit in at left-back and as a centre-back in various positions. Obviously, that permits you to have a smaller squad, so you don't have to buy less players to an extent. So it just, it, from a recruitment perspective, it just made sense that the fact he was young, English, at a club whereby we'd be able to get him for cheap, he'd be able to fill two positions. And obviously, if Van Dijk does take any kind of knock, we then lose, you know, a natural left-sided centre-back. Um, obviously, Kelly would play on the left. So for me, that that signing just made sense for whatever reason we didn't go in for him. Um, and I said to you yesterday, didn't I? At Bournemouth, it wouldn't surprise me if he made me look bad mm. because Bournemouth are so open at times defensively and he'll probably look like Bambi on ice. But at Liverpool, he would have had time behind the scenes to just fill in as Andy Robertson replacements here and there maybe. Um, whilst you know, maybe learning from Virgil as a centre-back. And he just gradually grew in prominence. But, you know, for whatever reason, it didn't happen. And at right-back, I like wan Um He'd cost a lot more, obviously, because, again, young English, but he's at a Premier League club. And he, he's on a long contract, I think, last time I checked. Um, but he's a player that... He's one of the best full-backs I've seen in a 1v1 duel. He constantly gets the better of opposing players who go up against him. I think he, he really dominated Sadio Mane, I think, earlier in the season at, at Selle's Park. Mm-hmm. And has talked him up, obviously, as a player that he struggles against in training. People talk about his lack of offensive output, but you've got to bear in mind the team he's playing for. And I see radars get posted to do with Wan-Bissaka in comparison to Trent, you know, to showcase that 
Wamba Saka does not the the same at Saka influences Trent does, but again that's that's relative to your team. That's not that's not really a fair comparison. And if you look at Wamba Saka on the ball, he has got skills there. He, can, he he I think he dribbles more than Trent to be honest. Mm-hmm. Might have to check he's, that he's, one. He's he's top dribbler. Yeah, um, but he's he's a top player and, and he would provide us with. Say for example, we do play a better opponent, and that opponent's inclined to maybe target Trent. Let's say, for example, we're going to attack through midfield using Ox, for example, and Trent's then going to have to be a bit more defensive. It would make sense to then pull Trent out and put Van Bissaka in, who's better defensively. Um, so it just provides the, those subtle tactical adjustments that you're able to make. Um, it just makes sense to have a very offensive fullback in Trent and a fullback who's defensively good in Van Bissaka and he's also homegrown and all this, so... From recruitment perspectives, Kelly and Wambasaka would be good, good, good acquirements. But you know, it's can't see it happen at most. Just very quickly, could you see Wambasaka being converted to a centre back at some point? Uh, at Liverpool. Well, just anyway, just, do you just think? Do you think general? that's what his that's what his future is, or do you think he's going to be a right back? It, it's it, I suppose we're always trying to convert right backs into something else. Maybe right backs is now the coolest. Uh, Position going in uh, in football. I, I don't know. He just sometimes I, I look at him and I think, yeah, I've just checked his height. He's six foot. Mm. I thought he was shorter than that. Um, still only twenty one. Perhaps he could occasionally fill in. Yeah. Um, and maybe he does offer that profile mm. of, you know, maybe a Lucas Hernandez or a Benjamin Pavard who can occupy both roles if needed. He's obviously very very good defensively. Um. So yeah, that's not a bad shout out. Yeah. Just one, uh, I haven't got a name for this one. Uh, why have the tactics with the fullbacks and crossing worked so well this season without the need for the traditional target man? Our attackers are dwarfed by most defences. I'll just go ahead and say Sadio Mane. <laughs> um, but I'm sure you can give a, a much more detailed answer than that. Well, I mentioned this question to you late, didn't I? So I didn't actually mm. plan for it. <laughs> I didn't actually think we were throwing that one in. Uh, but it was. I thought it was a very good question because it does make sense, I suppose. Um but I'm not, I'm not too sure. Uh, I think it stems from just how chaotic our attack is. Liverpool get players in the box, don't they? Yeah, and that, that's another thing. Yeah, we get players in the box. Most of the time, when Trent or Robertson go to hit across into the box, you've got Firmino, Mane, Salah, and usually one of the midfielders in there. So you've got a fair amount of space occupied there in various areas. Obviously, Mane is very good with his head. Um, so I just think it stems from that, and obviously the quality on delivery. And the area as well, that's crucial, the area the area in which that the crosses come from. They, I don't like using this phrase, but they're usually from an area called the half space, I don't like yes. saying it. But it's it's an area that's basically just just inside from being, you know, strictly by the touchline. Um, it's in a, an area that's not strictly central, but it's not strictly wide either. And... From those areas, crosses are very difficult to defend. Um, City are very good at exploiting that. You'll notice that whenever you do watch City, they, they pump in a ton of crosses from these areas and they always go towards the back post, always. There's always a player there and they're horrible to defend against. We don't strictly put it in like that, but we, we do cross from similar areas whereby risks are allowed to be taken in those areas. Mm. Because if they're ultimately headed out or defended, they usually float into areas whereby we have defensive players to just 
sweep up the ball and then restart another attack. So Fabinho's important for that, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there's a number of, number of reasons behind that, but I think to to play with such with such good crosses, I don't always think you need to have a a strict physical presence in the box. I think you just need numbers in there occupying the right zones and the delivery's got to be good. And obviously, from a training ground perspective, if things are premeditated and you know you have a rough understanding of where the ball's going to be played into and you know your, your teammates and things like that then obviously helps I also think I just love Sadio Mane's off the ball anticipation I think he's he's he is elite at that um, just 19 goals with Liverpool have scored headed, 19 headed goals uh, 5 um, away from their nearest rivals which is Tottenham um, Manchester United Cardiff and Southampton are bottom with four. Um, so we've also received, I think it's fair to say at this point, just we've received a fair few questions about the Champions League final. We're not going to ignore them. Um, we will talk about the Champions League final in depth next week, though. So we're sort of leaving that to one side. Um, we had loads about, you know, Shrem's weaknesses. Is it good or bad if Harry Kane plays? And you know, Pochettino versus Klopp. We will. We're going to do an episode next week, of course, in, in in preview to the final. So, you know, after the Champions League final, one of the the questions that well, one of the themes that came up the most was it transfers. Um, I know you've only been here, Josh, for five months, but you will get very much used to the fact that transfers is very much an agenda dominator. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of questions here. So I'll, I'll read a few of them out and then we'll just, you know, it's all around the same angle, basically. So um, like this one, first and foremost, though, uh, Stian Anderson. Um, this one was good, yeah. Yeah, because we spoke about this last week. We spoke about dribblers and how Liverpool... One of the little tiny things that Liverpool could maybe do a bit better is um, improving their dribbling because they were nowhere near the uh, the top of the league. That is obviously partly because of the way Liverpool play. Um, but, you know, obviously, Stian, who listens to the pod, uh, says, if we were to target realistic targets for better dribblers in midfield, what would be realistic based on success rates? Um, you've dis- discussed in previous pods. So, yeah, basically, because we've said that not- Liverpool haven't got many great dribblers on their side who could sort of fill that void he's even given us a price he said below 50 million pounds <laughs> well I think it's a it's a very relevant question because I think there's been a, a gradual rise of midfield dribblers mm. in football I, th- I think it's not something that we've ever really saw players that occupy central zones in a midfield area that can dribble it's not something that's ever re- really been about. If you think of the best midfielders ever in the Premier League, and you think of the likes of Lampard, Gerrard, um, Roy Keane, Scholes, Vieira, perhaps less so with Vieira, but these are players that could do it all to an extent, especially in Stevie's case. But he never really dribbled. Um, and obviously with pressing being such a key aspect of the modern game, you are you do become reliant on your dribbling to get out of tricky situations. We you know we call it press resistance, but an aspect of press resistance is is your dribbling ability. Um, looking at Liverpool's numbers this season, dribbles attempted per ninety uh, in central midfield. Fabinho less than one. Henderson one point two. Milner one point eight. 
Wijnaldum 1.8. Naby Keita is the standout 3.7. Mm. But we do that um, when he signs. Yeah, we did, yeah. I think I'd say any midfielder that's above three is uh, a bit different then. That 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 almost takes takes note a little bit. Um strictly in terms of white scout, I'm talking here. Uh, so I've just picked out a couple of, you know, recognised names. Europe's top five leagues, over a thousand minutes played, that all average over four per 90. Paul Pogba, mm. but we're obviously not going <laughs> to sign him. Uh, but the others are, you know, mind you, I don't know, I'll, I'll just name them anyway. I mean, Harris was top, the lad at Schalke. Right, okay. Uh, Still very young. He was top with a. I, I'm not sure you'd strictly label him as a centre midfielder. Mm. I think he spent some time out wide, but he averages around seven, which is a bit crazy. So I'd, have to, I'd probably have to look into that one. Um, Karem Demirbay. Have I said that right? Yes, and that Demirbay was he? I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Demirbay. He's just signed for Leverkusen. Yeah, that's annoyingly. Um, but he competes a fair few. Eves Basuma. Uh, Brighton. He's an interesting one. He is, yeah. A, uh, lot, a lot of the uh, analytics world are, are interested in Basuma and think that yeah, Hutton really didn't play him well, to that, his strengths. Well, that's that's largely why Chris Hutton, in my opinion, should have went because Brighton's recruitment isn't bad and they do sign decent little players that show up on the underlying performance numbers and stuff. And he's Basuma is one of them because he's got he's a bit like a Nabi Keita light. But like a, a, a navigator with a smaller ceiling. Mm. But that kind of player in terms of good offensive and defensive output can dribble, all that kind of stuff. So uh, another is Julian Brandt, who for mm. me would be the player in, in answer to the question. Um, Ruben Loftus-Cheek is the highest for the Premier League with around six, I think it was. Mm. Um, but he's played less minutes than Pogba, for example. Ndombele is another one. And... Bakayoko, who's on loan from Chelsea at mm-hmm. Milan. Yeah, these are players that, these are midfielders that just demonstrate a modern trait in terms of being able to dribble whilst playing in centre midfield. Um, you know, it, it is a unique trait. These are all relatively unique players, but if I was to pick one for, you know, less than 50 million who's re- realistic, it would be Julian Brandt. He's um, apparently got a release clause of around 21 million. Um, still young, I think he's around 23. He's comfortable in the attacking areas, but this season he's been moved back to, to play as number eight um, by Peter Bowes at Leverkusen. Former Ajax boss. Yeah, he used to be at, used to be at Ajax, yeah. So uh, he, he'd be the player I'd recommend there, but, but yeah, interesting little question. Paul asks, uh, what areas do you think Liverpool should strengthen? Um and if you were hired by Liverpool to recommend just one player for next season in that area, who would it be? Is it Brands or is it Wan Bissaka? Neither. Neither. Go on then. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's a strict one because I'm only allowed one. Uh, but I think if you're looking at it from you know an, an upgradable perspective, looking at our strongest eleven, you obviously want to upgrade your eleven if you can. Mm. Our eleven now is very very good, and it's difficult to upgrade it. So. You know, people that follow me on Twitter will know that I, I would go for... Mind you, hang on. I've just changed my mind. I'm not that name there. <laughs> I was going to say them entitled it. Yeah. And the reason I was going to say that is because from a recruitment perspective, there's virtually no downside to sign them. 
obviously he'd cost around sixty million. Um, but he'd be he'd be well worth that investment. Unique defender, very modern, strong, tall, good in the air, superb character, personality. Um, obviously very driven. He's, you know, at, at minimum. If you sell him, for example, in a couple of seasons, he's minimum gonna go for what you pay for him, which should be around sixty million today's market. Um, and he, and if you if you look at the players we've got there, it, it would have been a case of probably now cashing in on Lovren and replacing him with the lit, mm. um, because Lovren's now twenty nine, and again, obviously I spoke earlier about you got to think of it from a business perspective. If these Players are assets to you. Assets eventually depreciate. So if Lovren's 29, this season he hasn't played a great, great deal of minutes either. And he's obviously also got that error-prone way about him. For me, it makes sense now to... This is, you know, removing any emotion from it because obviously he's very close to Salah and you've got to consider how much of a character he is on his own team. Strictly from a business perspective, I think it makes sense to cash in on Lovren and replace him with the Lit. The Lit's a player that you've obviously you could have in your defence for the next decade. Um, just a, a top player. And I, I've saw him, I've saw people talk about well, what would happen to Gomez. I, I hate that argument because a Gomez has proven himself, unfortunately, to be pretty injury prone, and he doesn't recover quickly either. Whenever he does seem to sustain one of these little niggles, it seems to keep him out for longer than we expect every time. Um, and although he's got a very, very, very high ceiling, he you, you can't really rely on him. Um, the Lit has got a superb injury record. I think he's played more minutes this season than Van Dijk has. And again, that's, that's considered in his age, so... From a recruitment perspective, it just makes sense to sign the list, and that wouldn't mean getting rid of Gomez. That would just mean Gomez still playing here and there, like like almost like Guardiola does when he's rotating City centre backs, and it'd also provide Trent with a rotation option. If, for example, we play against a Wilfred Zaha, and we're going to use Trent less going forward, play Gomez, and you've got Gomez alongside the list, alongside Van Dijk, alongside Robertson with. Alison behind you, you know that's some defence. You're not going to many. You're not going to concede many there yet. So the the other name I just looked at then was Timo Werner, who I'd obviously like us to sign, um, because I don't think we've got anything close to our attacking three in in reserve. Uh, but yeah, strictly upgrading the eleven, I'd go for the lid. Frustratingly, I don't think Liverpool are interested. Um, which yeah. is yeah. Yeah, we'll see how that one develops, but from, from what we know. What about yourself? What about yourself? I think Werner, just because he can play yeah. a whole host of positions. I think I think Liverpool have got a, a, I mean, Paul here said talking realistic targets. The, the player I want more than most is, is Jaden Sancho, but it's not happening. Yeah. Um, basically, Liverpool have got a, a, a bit of a recruitment dilemma in, in the fact that they've got a front three who are 26 and 27, 26, 26 and 27 now. Um, and although they're not going to fall off a cliff anytime soon, there will become a point where, you know, they're all going to sort of, not necessarily depreciate at the same time, but, you know, in two, three years, you don't want to be relying on this front three and all of a sudden one of those components doesn't work. 
and all of a sudden you haven't been planning for the future. I think given Werner's age and given the fact that he can also he can play left and also central, I think he's the first source of signing that you make with a view to when Mane... It's contingency plan, ex- Exactly, it? when Mane or, or Firmino sort of maybe have a bit of a drop-off. Um, the only reason I'm not saying Salah there is because he doesn't really play on that side, but... Yeah, I just I just feel like Liverpool have, have almost got to get the next front three ready now yeah, as well. I totally agree, yeah. I think um, is, is almost like a, a left sided Salah. Yeah. Really. Very, very similar players in terms of they're both short, both very quick and short bursts, mm. both strong as well. Both have a lot of shots, both inclined to score, poaching types. So, you know, to play to play them either side of a Firmino, for example, and that's not discounting Mane. Mane would obviously still be heavily involved, but just in in this, you know, strictly situational moments to, to put them to either side of Firmino. You've got two elite poachers there who are purely interested in gold and nothing else. Um, so, yeah, it, it, Werner's equal for me with um, with the list in terms of who I, prior, who I would have prioritised for this summer, but remains to be seen what we'll go for. We'll uh, we'll skip ahead a little bit um, because I'm mindful that uh, we don't we don't want to rumble on too much. And to be honest, there's so many questions here. We could we could probably do another podcast at some point uh, after the Champions League final in the summer. Certainly about recruitments as well. There's a lot of interesting things that we can say about that. Uh, well, Josh can say about that. I can just ask the questions. Um, so just move on to loanies. It's a little bit recruitment based. Uh, Michael Kalecha um, says, "I'd like to see some analysis of the players we've had on loan." And what those stats suggest around whether futures exist for them at Anfield. Uh, likewise, Dan Jones on Twitter says, uh, our lone players, even though they have performed well at their respective teams, Wilson, Gruwich, Kent, do you guys think there's a future for them at Liverpool or sold for future transfers? I think to start with Wilson and probably Gruwich and, and Kent probably apply too. I think the problem is the general fan base will be judging these players based on this season, based on a very limited sample size. Obviously, you don't hear of them often because of the teams that they're playing for. And when you do hear of them, it's only ever positive news. So that then forms a perception in your own head and you start thinking, they're going to make it, we should keep them, we should play them. It's not. It doesn't really um, make sense a lot of the time. I think in, in Wilson's case, start with him. 22, um, homegrown as well. Obviously makes a lot of sense in terms of using him as an asset in terms of recruitment. Scored 21 this season, but XG says he should have scored 12. Uh, that obviously stems from a lot of the, the long-range goals he scored. Some of them have been flukes, some of them have been deflections, some of them have been free kicks. And again, they look great on highlight reels. But in terms of sustainable outputs over the course of a number of seasons, he's probably not gonna gonna be scoring that amount. Uh, I should say as well, twenty one. That's that's all competitions. I think, mm. um, maybe even including his country. And he's assisted four, and expected assists. Said he should have ex- he should have uh, assisted six. So he's. He's just an, an okay player, I think, in terms of his general attacking numbers. They're, they're just all right. They're, he doesn't have a ton of shots, doesn't have a ton of good shots. He doesn't get in the box a great deal. Um, in terms of dribbles, he dribbles about as about as often as Naby Keita does, just around three or four per match attempted. Um, 
And I think, as I said, although he looks good on highlight reels, it makes more sense after he scored 21 when he should have scored 12. It makes more sense at this moment to to cash in on that wave, if you know what I mean. Um, use that momentum that he's got in media almost to squeeze an extra 10 million out of a, a Bournemouth mm. or someone, a team like that, a team that is willing to jump on these uh, narratives, if you like. Um, Kent, again, he's very, very similar. He's also 22. But he he dribbles twice as often as Wilson. He averages about 67, I think, per 90. And his XG and XA numbers are at dead level. Should have scored seven, has scored seven. Should have assisted seven, has assisted seven. So Kent's much more realistic in terms of his performances. Maybe we could loan Kent another season so that he can maybe... Hopefully we'll get a bit of a performance out of him and then get get a bit more money for him, kind of thing. Um, but again, these these are two players that are very very good talents, but they have a ceiling, and that ceiling isn't Liverpool's level. You got to bear in mind the level that Liverpool are at now, and the demands placed on the attacking players in our team. It's no negativity towards them. It's just no. that Liverpool have moved up that that special level, haven't they? Really? Yeah. This isn't me not wanting to give the kids a chance. This is just being realistic as to where we're at. Um. There's also been a lot of talk about Marco Gorić, who, for me, he's he's an odd player because I looked into him a couple of months ago and I've, you know, had bits on him since. I think he's the best way I can put it is he's a bad version of Paul Pogba, <laughs> in that Paul Pogba's obviously a midfielder who's very physical, six foot three. Um, Grujic is also six foot three. Um, they both have a bit more of a tendency to dribble than the average midfielder, uh, Pogba more so. And they both, the the both not the best defensively and in terms of um, discipline. Um, so I think I think Grujic needs one of those roles whereby he's able to. He's, he's he's got the, the assurance behind him where he's able to drift into the final third and kind of influence a goal situation kind of thing because he's, he's not very creative but he's mm. he's inclined to nick the odd goal. Uh, he's got a bit of a poaching instinct about him. Um, but like what we've seen from Henderson in recent weeks, yeah, to, an, kind ex- of to an extent, it, I'd say he's in the mould of like a a Pogba, Milinkovic, Savic, Fellaini type player, if you know what I mean by saying that. Just that kind of weird, awkward attacking midfielder who is inclined to score, mm. um, but needs that coverage behind him at the same time. I think in the Bundesliga, he's benefited and he hasn't really suffered from it because A, he's playing for Hertha Berlin and the expectations aren't that great. And B, the Bundesliga, if, for those that watch it, is a bit mad. It's a bit way too open. There's not that much focus on defensive play and it's more about kind of um just everyone pressing from the front and it's quite it's quite crazy like that. And I think Grujic has benefited from 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 such a style of play. I think in the Premier League playing for Liverpool, I'm just not sure he's and he's twenty three now too, he's not he's not twenty, do you know what I mean? He's uh, you'd hope to be seeing certain levels from him now. Mm. And although he's he's demonstrating good things, he's again another one that I'd look to be 
maybe not cashing in on this summer, maybe, but maybe the next. I don't. I can, again, I can't see him making it into the first team. We'll uh, we'll talk a little bit more about. We'll talk a lot more about transfers and recruitments and loanies um, during the summer. Uh, there's certainly be a lot to cover. Um, I said so many questions, and I think we'll have to wrap it up here with one more. Uh, and it will be one um, slight forward facing one towards the Champions League final. It's Ryan Maven. And he says, is there an analytical reason as to why Klopp and Liverpool have lost a lot of finals recently? Could it be a mentality issue? Which we obviously can't quantify. Um, and if so, has this changed ahead of the Champions League final? Uh, little not so fun fact for me to, to begin with this. Liverpool lost the XG in all three of their previous finals under Klopp. I didn't know that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, which which surprised me. I was expecting maybe the Sevilla game, but then I, I suppose Sturridge's goal was an absolute worldie. Uh, I was expecting maybe the Liverpool one, uh, sorry, the Real Madrid one, because obviously Mane's got a very high XG there and the two Bale ones less so. But I didn't actually check that myself. Um, the Man City Carlin Cup one's an absolute yeah. annihilation. Yeah. There's like four versus one, but... I think it's an interesting question, though, mm. uh, and it's something that I've actually spoke to um, Joe about in terms of writing about it in the next couple of days. I think I'm going to actually produce a piece on this, but without delving into it too much yet, I would genuinely look at it as almost a case of bad luck, as naive as that sounds. You can't quantify luck, can you? No, but... you can't, and I think Klopp has had to deal in those finals with without a proper team mm. in most cases. Against City, it was obviously far from his team. Even against Sevilla, again, far from his team. And against Real Madrid, the key player, the talisman, the man that he can't replace, gets injured after half an hour. Um, and if you look at the XG timeline for the Madrid final, up until the point where Salah goes off, we... We have considerably more XG than, than Real Madrid. Real Madrid hadn't created virtually anything. And then literally from the moment Salah goes off, Madrid's XG town and then then starts to raise and ours starts to completely... Flat line, you know, basically, flat, yeah. Flat line up until the 90th minute. And that's because, um, obviously, Ox was injured and Lallana had to come on for Salah. Lallana is nothing like Salah. He doesn't offer any similar state at all. Um, and we just lost a lot of a lot of our game plan, a lot of our attacking dynamic. I think yeah. also, it, I always make the point that it was almost like, this is not no disrespect to Lallana. Um, you know, let's face it, he, he hadn't played much and I don't think he's really a wide forward anymore. Um, no, he's not. He but, can't play in the front three, Lallana. No, he's, no he's, he's, he's fine in midfield, of course. But um, you lose, obviously, Liverpool lose their best player, the, 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 the man who scored 30, uh, 44 goals in all competitions. But it also allowed Mar- Marcelo to, to attack because yeah. he was a non-entity because he was so scared of Salah he wasn't going forward. Very similar to Alba. In a, when when Liverpool played Barcelona, um, in the in the in the new camp, he didn't really have much of a say at the start because he was so scared of him. Marcelo, it basically goes from eleven versus eleven to twelve versus ten. Yeah, and just just in terms of um, you know a little bit on those finals, I think City we obviously lost on pens despite the fact that Klopp had virtually none of his players. Yeah. I don't even think we had Mane back then, did we? No, it was, um, and, and there was an injury early on, so Sacco got injured, so it was Lucas and Colo Torre at the back. Yeah, well, there you the, go. Yeah. And against Sevilla, Sevilla only had one shot in the first half, 
And, you know, I'm not sure if we've spoken about you and I, Emery, too much on this pod yet, but he's very good at adjusting mid-match. He's like Pochettino in that case. He's very tactically aware and very good at solving problems by making subtle adjustments. Obviously, in the second half, Sevilla had plenty more. And fair play to him for changing the game, and it's up to us to, to stop that. But I think if if this Liverpool team w- would face that, would face uh, that severe side, we would win. And I think also you've got to look at a final. There's a lot of pressure, pressure in the final. And we've mentioned previously on how pressure can influence decision-making and things like that. And, you know, in, in a final as, as, as big as that, you, you do become reliant to an extent on the players on the pitch to make good decisions and to provide big moments. And if you look at the Champions League final against Madrid, we obviously we obviously lost largely because of Carius, because of what happened to him. If he was concussed, whether he weren't concussed, doesn't really matter. It was down to the goalkeeper, which is very, very unlucky. In the Sevilla final, again, we can see the goals that Alisson would save. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that we would be going into this final with Alisson is going to be a complete world of difference. In terms of like, just being able to make, being able to step up in pressure moments, not letting the pressure influence your performance, and it'll be interesting to see how we do. We'll obviously talk about it more in in a upcoming pod, but I, I can't help but think that Klopp hasn't had that much of a fair crack at Liverpool in the final yet. I think what you've also got to say, and, and look, it's, it's no different for this one either, but. You know, his his final defeats in general have come against, you know, Bayern Munich, who were dominating um, the Bundesliga that season. Um, they came against Real Madrid, who at the time, you know, it was very much their last stand, but, you know, they were absolutely phenomenal footballers. Um, obviously, they've fallen off a cliff a little bit now, but, you know, at the time, they were three-time Champions League winners. Um you know, even Sevilla, you know, Unai Emery, and that was Sevilla's third ever, uh, third consecutive uh, Europa League triumph as well. So, I think Man City, of course, were, were the uh, were, were Crown Premier League champions that year, I think. Um, no, it was Leicester, sorry, forgive me, but, you know, they were obviously a, a, a high-quality team as well, and, and they're all from the finest of margins. They're all from... You know, Liverpool lose to uh, sorry Bayern lose to uh, sorry Dortmund lose to Bayern with an 88th minute uh, winner. Um, you know, Liverpool lose on penalties to Man City as you've said. Liverpool concede after seven eight seconds of the second half against Sevilla and it completely throws any sort of 50 minute team talk. Previously, the game plan goes out the window, and even something as small as. Uh, Origi um, comes on and they score straight away so it completely changes that game plan it was 2-1 Origi comes on and then it's 3-1 within seconds um, I, think, I think it's worth mentioning too that with the possible exception of Sevilla Klopp has never gone into a, a final at Liverpool and possibly even at Dortmund I'm not too sure certainly in the Champions League whereby he's had the better team mm. um, maybe they played Wolfsburg but that was the De Bruyne Wolfsburg yeah, you know, yeah. De Bruyne but, was there. But in terms of, did, did they not beat Wolfsburg in the final? No, I think Wolfsburg beat, that was Klopp's farewell. Oh yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking, because I think player quality is almost underappreciated. It's, it's not talked about enough 
I'm not sure if I mentioned the Valverde quote a couple of weeks ago mm. in reference to, you know, there's, there's no sport out there whereby the coach has less of an influence. Yes, you did, you did. Uh, obviously, the coach only gets to spend 15 minutes at half-time with the players with no timeouts, no breaks, nothing like that. So you are heavily reliant on your players to make good decisions and to be able to cope. And if certain players can't, if certain players can't step up, there's not a great deal the manager can do in the moment. And ultimately, if you have better players in those moments, they're going to cope better. So when I did up against, up against an, an inexperienced Liverpool at the time, Man City up against, you know, dismantled Liverpool in the League Cup final. Um, and Sevilla, who, who had won a fair amount of Europa League trophies themselves, these things come into me. Uh, I think it's really, really simplistic to 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 label Klopp as you know, a loser or, or a bottler or whatever you want to call it because he's lost a couple of finals because there's such fine margins in in these moments. It's mu- it makes much more sense to view him over two legs, which is obviously superb. So, yeah, hopefully we win this one. <laughs> And uh, that's that's pretty much what we're going to be uh, saying for between now and, and June the 1st. Uh, and it's what we will be saying next week on Analyzing Anfield when we will be previewing the Champions League final. God, I still wish it was Ajax and not Tottenham, but there you go. Uh, thanks very much to Josh for joining me this week. As always, I've been Christian Walsh. Try and uh, to try and get a bit, a bit of sleep, will you, between now and uh, next week. And um, have a lovely weekend. Enjoy it. No football. Can't, can't be a bit of that have a, have a nice little break everybody and we'll be back next week to talk about the Champions League final the game which I think is probably Liverpool's biggest of all time I'll explain a bit more on that next week thanks for joining us have a good weekend bye for now you've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo